Well, hey, good morning, guys. It is very, very good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, Rach and I, this has been an amazing weekend. Lots of reasons why. I mean, the conference was great. 403 Network Conference was top shelf. And it's hard to get something off the ground. It really is. Like, it's hard the first year. And this did not feel like a first shot at it. This did not feel like a first time thing. It felt like something. And maybe it was just the reality that it was so needed. It was so timely and so thoughtful. And uh, man, it is, it's kind of cool being here. Like, it's been an interesting experience for Rach and I because on one hand, we know a lot of people here. I think we imported, you know, maybe a dozen people from Langley uh, over the years, exported actually. You guys imported, we did the exporting. Um, and so we come here and it just, it's, it's really quite nice to feel like we're among friends, like really good friends. But then also meeting people like Tim and Ryan and different people along the way that's just been like, just to meet people with similar hearts is just so incredible. And it just reminds me, I don't, I don't know, like, sometimes we, we forget that God is building his church around the world. All over the world, 2.3 billion Christians. The church is growing faster today than it ever has at any point in human history. And so sometimes when I'm watching the news and I see something like, you know, from BC, and we're trying in BC to build the local church and to, to run the race that God has marked out for us. And then, and, then, and then I'll see something happen in another part of the world or even in Alberta. And I'm instantly reminded how thankful I am that God has put his church in Alberta. Because it can be overwhelmed when you think about the needs around the world and the cause around the world. How many people unreached? I Man, I just think about where we talk about Moldova or Russia, like these remote places. I'm just thinking how exciting. Not that there's just being people sent, but there's actually established works in those places. It's so encouraging and it's so inspiring. I think if I want to do anything today, I want to do anything. I just want us to step back and I want us just to consider the work that God's been doing in history in building his church. Because sometimes we think that we're in this, this one cultural moment. It's hard to see outside of it. And I want us to consider the work that God has been doing in human history. And I want us to consider the work that he's doing around the world. My grandpa passed away a few uh, winters ago, a few summers ago, rather. And uh, the winter before he passed away, uh, I was in, uh, he, he lived in the basement suite with his sweet wife, um, Kath, who's my grandma, who's still alive, and of my parents' house. And so I was downstairs, and I was hanging out with them, and Grandpa disappeared into the closet. He had a walk-in closet, and he came out with his Bible. This isn't it, but he came out with his Bible, and uh, he came up to me, and he said, Jason, I'm going to die soon. I said, that's kind of dark, Grandpa. He goes, I'm going to die soon. And he goes, this is my Bible. And he says, I want you to have my Bible when I die. So I reached out my hand to grab it. I was like, hey, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> and, um, and so, and we didn't know at the time that he was sick. Um, but later that year, he passed away, or the following year. And, um, man, it was a beautiful time with Grandpa. Like, we had these just, we thought we were going to lose him. But then he, he just pushed through and just fought for another, like, four or five weeks in the hospice. And so we just had all these moments and most of the time, he was cognitive, and we're able just to connect and spend time together. And uh, those are my favorite times with him and with the Lord. You know, I'd read scripture. There's times when he was just not even quite present, and I'd read scriptures, and he would come to as he heard familiar phrases, and he would he would find different ways to vocalize his amens. And a couple things stood out to me in that moment, in that season. One is I watched him in his last days try to fulfill the call of God in his life. And it's hard to consider the call of God in our life. 
One time Jesus was asked in Matthew chapter 22, uh, what's the greatest of all the commandments? And really the question, I mean, the religious leaders were asking this question probably just to kind of test him and probe him. But the question's interesting to us today because we wrestle. We wrestle like, what is, what is, like, if there is a God and if he's real, does he have a plan for my life? And one of the biggest needs of the human heart is the sense of purpose and meaning and destiny. And so we often ask this question, like, why am I here? What am I here for? Does God have a plan for my life? And so he's asked this question. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. And the religious leader said, hey, out of all the, like, hey, what is the greatest of all the commandments? And Jesus said, you know, the first one is this, love the Lord your God with all that you've got. And then he says, the second is similar, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, all of the laws and all the prophets hang on these two things as if to say, like, man, if you want to know what the race marked out for your life is, if you want to know what God's plan for your life is, you're going to discover that in your unique characteristics and abilities as you outwork this invitation to love God with your heart and to love others. Another way to put it is to know God and to make him known in this world. And even if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I do want you to know, I do want you to know that that is God's plan for your life too. That's why you're on planet earth, to give yourself away for others that they may have wholeness of life and to discover wholeness of life in your heart through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what God wants for you. And so what's interesting is when you see it, like the psalmist said this, the psalmist said, teach me to number my days aright that I may gain a heart of wisdom. And it's very hard for humans to number our days rightly. But when you're on your deathbed, you, you can number your days. So I watched as my grandpa used his last days to try to fulfill the call of God in his life. So even in the hospice, like we would sing some hymns together. And he'd always say, sing a little louder so the people around can hear. Last night we were in, uh, in our hotel and some people down the road must have had the same sort of conviction. A couple doors down because they were doing something really, really loud. Uh, I think they were playing poker or something because every once in a while they would like all cheer and yell. And uh, eventually somebody must have complained. We weren't those people. I wanted to. I almost picked up the phone and was that person to complain. Um, My grandpa would say, let's sing a little louder these hymns so that people in the other rooms can hear. And I just noticed one day he slipped a note under somebody else's door just to encourage them in the last days that there's hope and there's life. And I just watched him his last days love God and love people. I'd bring my buddy, like my buddy Jared, and he would just take these. And every single time he was with one of my friends, he would look at them and he would try to hug them and give them these encouraging words as as if to say, I want to use my last days to fulfill the cause of Christ, to run the race marked out for us. Because sometimes we get discouraged and distracted, especially when we don't have the weight of our days. We kind of think, oh man, like, it's so easy. You know, one of the biggest distractions, the biggest temptations in the Christian life is not just like to live a life of total compromise. It's just to live average. It's just to go to church on Sunday, you know, do a little bit of giving, you know, do a little bit of volunteering and and then just to kind of take the, just the average sort of standards of culture around us and make that our goal and pursue comfort and peace. And sometimes it's the biggest temptation. Sometimes that's the thing. I think for me, the thing that distracts me the most from fulfilling the call of God in my life, to love him, to love others, to know him and make him known, is just average. It's just being average, just being normal, just, just a sense on the outside. On the outside, it could seem like to, to everybody else that I'm running full on. But in my heart, I know that there's just a decrease in the fervor. There's a decrease in the pace. So I watched my grandpa as he used his last days with fervor to do these things. But then I also, after he passed away, um, grandma came and gave me his Bible. And in the front, he wrote a note. And he said, uh, Jason, this is my Bible. I love it dearly. And he really did. Like, if you flip through all the pages of it, 
you'd see that he had all these things underlined. He always wanted to be a preacher, and he went to a brethren church. And in a brethren church, they have a space of time where you can get up and share. And Grandpa was never like a preacher that got the opportunities that he dreamed of. But he always wrote sermons, because in the brethren tradition, you always have to be ready to give a word. And so in his Bible, the reason why I don't travel with it is because it's, it's loaded with, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of little pieces of paper with little sermonettes all throughout his Bible. Every single corner is wrinkled, because he's the old guy that goes like this to flip the page. Every single corner is wrinkled, because he's flipped it a few times. Things carefully underlined. And she said, Jason, this is my Bible, and I want you to take it. I want you to preach the word of God. And it was like he handed me a baton. Have you ever seen a relay race before? People are running, you know, it's a pretty good impression. And um, they've got the baton, and they run, and there's kind of this transition zone, and they kind of pass the baton. The person behind grabs it and keeps running. I think sometimes we miss the scope and scale of what's God doing, that we're linking arms with people all over the world in the cause of Christ in this generation, but we're also grabbing the baton from those who've gone before us. From, from the beginning of human history, since the fall, God has been outworking a plan of redemption for planet Earth. Like, and, and I don't know what you believe about God, creation, this world, but I mean, for, like, sometimes as, as I consider the fall and I see the brokenness in this world, if there is a God at all, I wonder why he didn't just give up on it and start afresh. But God, in his love and kindness, in such a broken and tragic world, he cares so deeply that he began to, an outworking of his plan of redemption through human history. And the climax, every story goes like this. Every story starts with the problem, and then there's a bigger solution, the climax of the story, and then there's the outworking of that climax as we see the finale. The climax of the story of God in human history was the coming of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, the sending of his spirit to fill the church. That was the climax. We've experienced the climax of the story of God. God's redemption in human history, that means that we are in the space between the climax and the finale. That we are in the most exciting time in history. So take a step back for a second. Consider the moment we live. I know it's hard as Canadians because everything dulls our senses. Just the averageness of Christianity, it dulls our senses and makes us think that this is just something we do to add to our portfolio of things to make us comfortable on planet Earth. But that's not what this is. We live in the most exciting time of history. And the cause of Christ in our day, it demands a life laid down, but it is an invitation to a full, dynamic, exciting life wrung out for the cause of Christ and the cause of others. It's an amazing invitation. It's an amazing invitation. And we have to see, we have to see that we've grabbed a baton from the generation before us. Man, I sniped a picture, actually, a really funny video of you guys just doing a little hug there, but it was kind of awkward. James went for the mic, Ben went for the hug, so then James switched it up, went for the hug, then the mic. I got it on video, I'll show it to you guys afterwards. But I love that, I love that video. I didn't post it, I didn't post it, I wanted to, I just grabbed it, saved it in my pocket, give it to you guys later. Anyways, I love that picture because even in our life, there's this baton passing going on. So we take a step and we see it here in our moment, but take one step back and consider this all over the world right now. As there's Christians fighting for the cause of Christ all over the world, linking arms, and then in history, we find ourselves here. And with all that in mind, with all that in mind, I want to approach a passage of scripture today. And where we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 12, and just a little bit of context that might help us. Um, we don't know the exact date that Hebrews was written, but we know that it was before, like, the fall of the temple, the destruction of the temple. So we're, like, we're between 40 and 70 AD. So what that means is, like, this is not long after Jesus had been on earth. Some of his followers that met him, that experienced the resurrected Jesus, might still be alive. And so it's a very interesting time in history because you have these people of radical faith 
who experienced the resurrection. At very least, you're one generation away from people who are eyewitnesses to the resurrection. But yet at the same time, to be a Christian in that time was incredibly difficult. There was such strong social, political opposition. I mean, the, 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 the social, religious culture of the day was so opposed to Christianity, so opposed to that lifestyle, so opposed to it. It was just, it was very, very hard. And for, for a lot of people, it cost them their lives. In a lot of ways, sometimes um, I heard one co- social commentator talk about like hard power and soft power. And so we don't experience the kind of the hard fist that they experience. They fit, fit like they, they experience total opposition, like threatening their lives. We don't experience that today. But we experience, you know, what some social commentators might call like soft power. A soft pressure to conform. That no one's telling us that we, hey, you're going to die for being a Christian. But all of these small, soft circumstances around us try to dull our senses and push us away from living radical for Christ. So in a different way, it's challenging to live out our faith in this, in this time. But for them, it was radically difficult. So we have this contrasting tension. Consider this. Such certainty about the resurrection of Jesus. Such confidence, but yet such opposition. And so the writer of Hebrews, similar to like some of the writings of Paul we read in other, cha- other epistles, is trying to encourage people to persevere. Trying to just encourage them to keep on going. Um, my friends and I kind of signed up for this little challenge because um, I'm not an athletic person. I'm not athletic at all. And uh, if, if I just kind of like let my lifestyle build out around my work, I would find myself very out of shape, very unhealthy. And so my friends and I kind of put these challenges the last two years in front of us that September, the first long week of September, we we're going to do triathlon together. And just a short one, but for me, I mean, incredibly difficult. Like, the first time we did it a year and a half, two years ago, I had no idea how to swim. I, honestly, the hardest part for me was getting that wetsuit on. Have you ever put on, like, a full-on, I mean, I guess my physique just wasn't, like, trim enough for it. And just the whole experience of trying to get it on was incredibly difficult. But I found myself, even this year, as I was doing the triathlon, I got out of the water and, uh, and then onto the bike and instantly so tired, like, in any other circumstance, like at this point in time, I'm not even a quarter of the way down. I'm like, I'm, I just love just to stop right here. And the whole time, just to find any willpower to persevere was incredibly difficult. Perseverance, sticking it out, finishing it to the end. You know what's bizarre about me? On my own, on my own, I would never finish it. If there were not hundreds of other racers and hundreds of people watching, I would never finish it. When I'm at home, I say, I'm going to do 20 push-ups. I get on the ground, and I just do 16. Almost every time. I never, I always plan for 20. I never hit 20. Why? Because I don't persevere on my own. And the writer of Hebrews understands this reality. He understands that to follow God, to obey his commandments, to live holy, to live righteously, and to give yourself away for others. To find yourself giving your best energy, your best hours, your best resources to the cause of Christ. Incredibly difficult. And so the writer of Hebrews come along to say, hey, I realize that I want you to see that you're not alone. You're not alone in this. And I want to encourage you to keep on going. Man, I've been driving around Calgary. I remember yesterday, Ben was driving me, and we drove past the Dream Center. And he said, hey, have you seen the Dream Center before? I had no idea it was here. And he goes, this is actually a part of the ministry of First Assembly. I said, this is amazing. I had no idea that you guys had this extension into the community like that. That's no small thing. Driving around with Tim and talking about the Tehillah movement and hearing what's happening and the role of Alpha and that you guys are running Alpha this Wednesday. I love that about you guys. 
I love that you're making a space. I mean, Alpha is so much work. If you're volunteering, it's so much work to put on Alpha. Man, it is not like to commit to nine to ten weeks of sitting at a table to create that safe place for people who are far from. That is tons of work, but you guys are doing it. You guys are doing it. Tonight, to show up for a prayer meeting just to pray for revival. Not, not every church is doing that. Not everyone, But you guys are doing it. You guys are doing it. You're carrying on. And if anything I want to do today, I don't want to come and tell you something that you're not doing. I just want to say keep on going. Because there's Christians in Langley, there's Christians in China and around the world that are excited knowing that God is outworking his plan in Calgary through this churches and the churches in this region. There are a lot of great churches in this region. Yeah, give it a round of applause for that. We're banking on you guys. We're banking on you guys. We're banking on you guys to keep on going. Don't give up. Link arms with us, the church. Consider the baton that's been passed. And so with all that shared, why don't we find ourselves here in, in, in Hebrews chapter 12. And just want to read the first uh, four verses of that chapter. Do we have it up on the screen? Why don't we read it together? Not out loud. I'll just read it off the screen so we're making sure we're working with the same translation. It says this, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to life of faith. Let's just pause there for a second. Keep the scripture up. What are they talking about the cloud of witnesses? We've already touched on this. But if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, you'll see that the writer of Hebrews has called to our attention all these men and women in generations before who have ran the race of faith in their time. Many of them who died for their faith or gave up their best for their faith. People like uh, Abel, Abraham, uh, Noah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Gideon, and David. They're calling to attention all these great men and women who fought for the cause of Christ in their generation. So he says, hey, what you need to see, and the picture he's trying to grab to our attention, is that of a host in heaven leaning over and saying, keep on going. A lot of those men and women didn't get to see the fulfillment of the promise. In fact, all of the men and women that he talked about didn't get to see the fulfillment of the ultimate promise of the climax of the narrative of God's redemption in human history, the coming of Jesus Christ. They didn't live in the age of the Holy Spirit. They didn't experience that kind of favor with God, that kind of intimacy God, that kind of empowerment from God. But they ran the race in their generation. And the picture that the writer of Hebrews wants us to see is that they are leaning over heaven, cheering us on, and that we are not in this race alone. The baton's been passed to keep Ongoing. So he says, consider the cloud of witness. And then he says this, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. Anything, anything that slows us down. I don't know if you guys uh, follow things like Tour de France or like professional cycling. But one of the things, because most of my triathlon training was done online because I didn't want to actually do the work. So I just Google tips and tricks. I figure if I get enough tips and tricks, the whole thing will be effortless. There was one tip and trick that I didn't uh, take, and because uh, I just not, I'm just not there yet. Maybe next year, and uh, it's that professional cyclists have done the research and the data that just the hair on your arms, the hair on your legs, can add like fractions of a second to every kilometer. But those fractions of seconds added up over a long race can actually make the difference between first and second, second and third, third and fourth. So professional cyclists, they do an inventory on anything that would slow them down. So they tune their bikes. They tune their gear, and they even shave off the hair on their arms and legs. Anything that slows them down. And what would happen if we paused and took an inventory in our life and considered, is there anything that's slowing us down and running the race that God's marked out for us? Is there anything that's slowing us down? Let's come back to that in a second. They says this, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And I, we're, I, I do want to talk a little bit about sin this morning. 
And I know that there's this weird thing, and I think it's the devil's plan. Because God desires that we would live a life of freedom. Freedom from addiction and habits that hurt others and hurts ourselves. And one of the ways to actually overcome sin and grow in maturity as a human being is through conversation, maturity, wisdom. And so I think one of the devil's plans to make it so we couldn't talk about it was to load the conversation with so much guilt and shame that every time it comes up, people start feeling comparison. And so we say, you can't tell me about sin because you don't live a good enough life. And then also shame and guilt creep into our own hearts, so we put up walls to stop listening. But I want you to know this, that there's no comparison. I don't have the right to tell you this stuff. I don't have a sin-free life. But the good news of the gospel says that God's leveled the playing field. We've all been measured against one measuring stick, and that's the righteousness of Jesus, and we all fall short. And that actually puts us all in the same boat. It gives us permission to have this conversation. Say, hey, I'm not getting to heaven by my works. You're not getting to heaven by your good works. I'm not earning God's approval by the good things that I do. You're not earning the approval of God by the good things you do. I don't earn my seat at church by the good things that I do. You don't eat, earn your seat at church by the good things you do. It's all a work of God's grace. I love the vision of this church that you would belong even before you believe. That you'd belong before anything in your behavior changes. That we belong and it's grace. And what that does is that creates a space that we can have a very real conversation. We can have a conversation about the destructive nature of sin. We can draw it to our attention without putting walls up. And so I want to do that a little bit this morning. Let's keep going on with the scripture. It says, let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. There's two levels that I want to look at that line. Running with endurance the race that God has set before us. First is the personal level and then is the corporate level. Whenever we read scripture, we need to understand that almost first and foremost, God is speaking to a people, and the outworking of his plan is always done in a people. But then we read also another level that it speaks to us personally. So on a personal level, let's just take a moment and celebrate the reality that God has marked out a race for your life, and that is good news. That even if your mom and dad didn't intend you to be here, because my mom sometimes grins at me and says, you know, you weren't planned, Jason. You were a love baby. I say, mom, that's disgusting. I never want to hear that again. I guess I kind of get a kick out of the reality that I wasn't planned in that way. I get a kick out of the thought that maybe God thought, one more for the Ballards. I'm going to get Jason in the mix because i got a plan for his life. Thank you for one person <laughs> saying, yes, I agree before the Lord for his life. I love you. So much. So encouraging. <laughs> Trying to ignore the other, you know, 500 people that didn't. Um, God thought you up. In the book of Job, it says that God holds the breath of every living human being in the palm of his hands. In the palm of his hand. And that means that if you're breathing and you're here, God intended you to be here. And that's incredibly good news. That's such good news. And he's marked out a race for your life. And corporately and collectively, we know what the race is. You know, some people critique the will of God and say, man, I just don't know what God's will is, so we live in paralysis. But the crisis in my heart with God's will is not that it's vague, it's that it's so clear in Scripture. I think the real crisis about God's will for our life is how clear it is that we're supposed to give our whole heart to love God and to love others. And the outworking of his specific will is discovered as we find our gifts and abilities and our special place in that corporate outworking. 
that God made each of us unique. He's marked out pylons for us to follow. He's laid out a path for us. For you, how amazing that God thought you up and he put you in this place, in this time of history, on purpose. Man, for all the high school students here, I want you to know you are God's plan for your campus. God puts you in that school on purpose, with a purpose. And that's not just true of high school students. For everyone here, God knows where you live. God knows where you work. And for this season, when you live in that place and you work in that office, that's God's good plan for your life. That you would be a light in that place. You're going to be an ambassador of love in that place. And you say, man, I don't like my job. I'm praying for a different job. Yeah, well, well, you have this job in this season. And God might change that. But for this plan in this season, this is God's good plan for your life. And the plan is not vague. It's clear that you would love him in the work that you're doing. You discover him and that you would love others. You would know him and make him known. He's marked out a plan for you. And the other way we understand that is on a corporate level. That God's plan for Calgary, the outworking, is, this, is the church, capital C. Not just the people in this room. That he's building a people in Calgary, a kingdom people, who are meant to point and draw people's attention to God to be ambassadors of love, to champion the cause of the oppressed, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. You say, hey, I don't know how to participate. I don't know where to start. I'm not, this, is what I, this, is, this is how I've tried to discover the outworking of God's plan for my life, to run the race he's marked out for me, is take, take the steps that are in front of you. Take the opportunities. Come to Revival Prayer tonight. Volunteer to serve on Alpha. Become a youth leader in Tehillah Youth. Take the opportunities in front of you while they're there. And then in that working, you'll discover your unique bent and creativity. And over time, you'll find the unique special place you might have. I'm not saying that those are the definitive things that you can do to follow the race that God has marked out for you. But I want to encourage you, put your hands to the work. Put your hands to the collective work we're doing. And then also this, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate the individual expressions of that work all scattered throughout this city. Scattered throughout this city. Let's go back up. So it says, in light of all of this stuff, in light of the good news that God has a plan and purpose for your life, in light of all of this, he says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. I want to talk for a moment about the way that sin entangles. There's so much that can be said about sin. I heard one person say that sin's like an onion. It's got tons of layers, and it really does. It impacts our relationships, our relationship with God. I want to just talk specifically about the way in which sin robs us from our race. The way in which sin steals from us the calling that God has in our life. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Let's say, for example, um, you know that God's plan for your life would be live a life of generosity. Like just to give away the resources, the time, even the money that you've got. And that's a, that's a noble thing. That's a beautiful thing. And I, I believe that's lots of our desires, that if we were to be really honest at the end of the day, we'd be really, really honest. Man, my heart's desire is that I be able to be generous. And it's interesting that, like, the temptation of materialism, the temptation of greed, it instantly robs us of that mission. It's just in such a practical way. It's almost so practical that we don't see it, that just the closing of our hands on stuff and our money, the just the subtle the subtle rhythm of entitlement that we feel so justified to have towards our stuff. If we earned it, we can spend it. But that's not the economy of God's kingdom. 
is that whatever has been given to us is a gift, and that the gift can be used in all sorts of different ways. But then greed, it's sneaky, right? Like, like sin, like, the, like sin that entangles, it's not always obvious. It's sneaky. Like, it starts small. It just starts with subtle decisions that put yourself before others. And before you know it, you find yourself as one who God's blessed to be a blessing to others. But all of that blessing, you closed your fist on it. Before you know it, I found myself addicted to greed. And the very thing that God gave you those gifts to do was to be a blessing to others. You've you're not running that race anymore. And I just before I move on from greed, I want to say this. I heard Tim Keller say this one time. He says, hey, I've been a pastor for a long, long time. And people come up after the service and talk to me about addictions to pornography. They talk about things they've done to, like, slam or hate on a neighbor or things that they've stolen. But he says, no one's ever come up to me and said, man, I struggle with greed. And what's interesting is the, 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 one, the one temptation that we might share most in common, the one sin we might, might share most in common in this room is greed. So much so that we've just accepted it. We've just accepted it as a way of living. And the writer of Hebrews is saying to his people, guys, you've experienced the resurrected Jesus. He's marked out a plan and purpose for your life. Throw off those things that are slowing you down. No guilt, guys. No shame. Just take inventory. Are there things that have, we've closed our fist on? You might say the same thing about gossip. Knowing that, like, some of the best gossipers are always the best communicators. They are. They just, they tell stories, and they're so beautiful to listen to, right? But just consider this. Consider this for a second. I'm talking about the nature of sin's ability to rob us from our call. God's given us an ability to communicate, to encourage, to build up, to love others. And what gossip does, track with me for a second, Gossip doesn't just disparage others, it discredits you. And so all of a sudden, even if you've got real relationships, you know, whenever you hear somebody, like, if every single time somebody leaves the room, let's just use myself for example, if I become the kind of person in my friend group that whenever someone's not in the room, I'm talking about them, do you know the rest of my friends are going to think when they're not in the room, I'm talking about them? And I've just seen that pattern in my own life. I'm not, no, no, no shame here, guys. This is me I'm talking about. That I have a propensity towards gossip but I feel called to be a communicator of the love of God. And do you see how sin has this propensity to so easily entangle and discredit the very thing that God's given me to use to build his kingdom? You know, no one, um, no one like is flipping channels at TV and finds themselves on some pornography or a nude scene in a movie and pauses there and thinks, man, I want to pause here so I can lose the trust and intimacy with my spouse so that I can bring hurt and harm to my kids or the community around me. No one, no one thinks that. But something like pornography is so easily entangles, you know? Before you know it, it's, it's, it's shaped your imagination and it's, it's caused you can't even look at people of the opposite sex the same way anymore. And all of a sudden, the trust, the, the, the very fabric that we depend on to build healthy community can be eroded through such a, such, such a thing that's so easily entangled. I think about my buddy Tyler. And, um, you know, up until about 19, he managed to somehow, against all the odds and all the stats, managed to, like, not fall into the trap of pornography. But then he went through a really hard breakup. And his heart was so hurting that he found temporary relief in pornography. And what's interesting is sometimes we want to just, like, point our fingers and talk about sin like it's just this icky thing, but oftentimes the thing that we're most drawn to is often something that's sort of just medicating our hurt heart. 
that before we just go around and be like, man, you're just icky, you're just, you're just, it's just, no, no. So often the thing that we find ourselves tripped up in is something that we found temporary relief or comfort, mending our broken heart, trying to numb the pain. And so Tyler found himself like full on addicted through his iPod touch, his mobile device, and through his laptop. So one night he had some friends over and they were praying in his backyard around a fire. And uh, as they were praying and as they were worshiping, uh, they're like, let's take turns putting people in the middle and we'll pray for them. Not in the middle of the fire, in the middle of the, the prayer circle. And so they put Tyler in the middle and they all begin to pray for Tyler. And all of a sudden he runs out of the prayer circle, okay? So everyone's like, what's going on here? He runs into the house and he comes running back out and he's got his iPod touch and his laptop in his hand and he throws it on the ground and he grabs the ax they had been cutting wood with and he begins to go to town on his laptop and his iPod touch. Why? Because he got radical. He got ra- he took it seriously that this thing, this thing is entangling me. And it's robbing me from the race that God's marked out for me. It's stopping me from loving. It's putting, a, it's putting a wedge between us and God. It's causing guilt and shame to creep into my life. It's causing to distort my vision of women in my community. And then I look at that guy and I just think, man, if, if we were more radical, again, no guilt and shame, we lock the doors. It's not welcome here, guys. Just friends having a conversation. Have you taken inventory? What's, what's a radical expression? when it comes to the way we spend money, the way we communicate, the way we talk, I think one of the most radical things that you could do is to invite somebody into your problem and just be honest and real with them. That might be the radical first step you take. And this is what I don't want to do. I do not want to put anyone on the spot and say, hey, you know, raise your hand if you're struggling. Now go into, no, no one's on the spot, okay? I'm not backing into a corner, okay? What I want to do is invite us to let the grace, the, the Bible says that it's, it's, it's the kindness of the Lord that brings us to repentance. And so when, and, and it's, one of the expressions of his kindness is the invitation to run this race. He's got a plan for your life. He's got a plan for your life. So let's go back to scripture. How do we do this? How do we run the race marked out for us? Verse two. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. The champion who initiates and perfects our faith. One translation says, the one on whom our faith depends from the beginning to the end. I love that the writer of Hebrews says, um, who initiates, because when it comes to God's grace, I think we're, we're convinced of it when it comes to initiating. We can't become a Christian. We can't earn right standing with God by our works. So I think that a lot of times we say, we understand God's grace at work in the initiation of our faith. But when it comes to the outworking of our faith, that's on us. But it's not on you. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes that you're God's handiwork. That means he's at work in your life, pruning you and shaping you and outworking in your life that you would be an ambassador because he's prepared you for good works in advance, the Bible says. The one on whom our faith depends from the beginning to end says this, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Do you get the next passage here? Now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. This says this, verse three, think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then, you won't become weary and give up. He's saying, hey, take a second in a very practical way. Consider Jesus. He gave his life. 
He gave his life because he had a mission and a joy in front of him. He knew that the prize of a life laid down was the reconciliation of mankind to his heavenly father for the glory of God on planet Earth. And here's the deal. Whenever we say yes to something great, we're always saying no to other things. I think about the most valuable things in my life, my wife, my kids. Nothing has cost me more money, more time, more sleep than my kids. But nothing has brought more reward and value. Nothing, I think, is worth my time, my money, my sleep, my kids. Every time you say, you know what, like, I have great friends that I love spending time with that I don't get to hang out with as much. Good thing. But I just can't because I'm saying yes to something better. And this is the interesting thing about this passage of Scripture. It says everything that hinders, especially the sin that's so easily entangled. Sometimes the thing that we strip from our life is not necessarily something that's inherently sinful. Sometimes it's a good thing that we say no to in light of a greater thing. That, man, I'm, I'm focusing my life. I'm getting essential with my life. I'm focused on the one very thing that I'm going to do, and that is to love God and love people with my life. And I'm going to clear the clutter. I'm going to take inventory, especially on the sin that so easily entangles. But I love that it says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. It says, consider him on one this practical level. This, consider the, the, the effort he put in to run the race. But I think it also calls to attention the daily practice of experiencing the love and kindness and embrace of Jesus. How can we find the courage, the stamina, the, how can we find the perseverance and the focus to run this race in a culture that's so distracting? When we turn our eyes to Jesus, sometimes in the stillness of the morning, sometimes with corporate worship, Sometimes throughout the day, opening scripture, we turn our eyes to Jesus, and this is what we see. We see grace. We see acceptance in his eyes. Acceptance that says, even if you've messed up, you're not disqualified. There's no one in this room. You might look in the eyes of other followers of Jesus and feel like you're disqualified, but if you look in the eyes of Jesus, you'll see that he's still got a plan for your life that he welcomes you back. There's full acceptance. There's full love. You're not disqualified. If you look at Jesus, you see his work on the cross and you see the living Jesus and the grace in his eyes and the Holy Spirit illuminates this to our hearts. We see his love and affection. It empowers us to give ourselves a light. One of the reasons why we don't want to give our lives away is because we're worried if I give myself away, who's going to look after me? But if you see the affection in his eyes, you see the way he loves you. You're seeing that he's providing for me. So I can give and I can give and I can give because I've got a heavenly father who's going to look after me. Man, like, how do we do this? Man, accountability would be great. Maybe, like, you know, more prayer, more power, whatever it might be. But, like, whatever you do, whatever you do, the, the, the beginning and the end, like, the core of it all, there, there's practical tips for overcoming certain habits and temptations and all these different things. But at the core of it all, it's turning your eyes upon Jesus and seeing him. There's this beautiful song. Um, that goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And um, it says that the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So many things distract us from the race that God has called us to. But when we see Jesus, it casts a shadow on everything else. He becomes the prize and the reward.